0: Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him, Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus came up, touched them, and said, get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, why then do the the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him speaking about John the Baptist. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. That's another prediction of his own coming crucifixion that was lost on at least Peter, James, and John in this case. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. In yesterday's devotion, we see this incredible call to sacrifice our lives, to take up our crosses, to follow Jesus. And then in the final sentence, there's a bit of an enigma that seems to have eschatological implications. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The, the interpretation that says that means that all, everybody who's alive today, post year, you know, eighty, thirty-one 31 or 32 or 33, like we're, we all missed the boat and the second coming of Jesus has already taken place, and we've missed it. Paul actually would writer, later write a letter saying, don't fall for that teaching who say that he's already come and we've all missed the boat. All right? Rather, Jesus is talking about the transfiguration, which takes place in the very next passage. And when he says, some of you standing here, he's referring evidently in this interpretation to Peter, James, and John. After six days, okay, this just six days later, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, uh, uh, Peter, Peter, and James, and his brother John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Okay, and he was transformed right in front of them, he was transfigured in front of them. We saw this in our study of the gospel of John. We saw Jesus describe in prayer publicly how he had a glory before He walked the earth physically, and He talked to God the Father for the benefit of those listening. By the way, that's now you and me as we read the Gospel of John, now we're reading the Gospel of Matthew, so that we would know this about Him, that He was going to be restored to the glory that He had before. In His current state, as He's physically present with the disciples speaking to them, He bears the likeness of us. He is fully man, but he's also fully God. And so, while he's speaking to them, he's he's descended to the lower regions, okay? There are some translations. This actually has huge effect on uh, your interpretation of the, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, where you can look at the text describing Jesus descending down to the lower regions. And you can say, oh, that means that Jesus went to hell. I believe it speaks to Jesus here. These are the lower regions and he's among us. And yet when Peter and James and John see Jesus transfigured, they see him in a glimpse and a vision of the glory that he had from our perspective before he came down. And then there's Moses and Elijah. It's fascinating. We know the story of Moses' death. Moses died on, you know, uh, near like the bank of the Jordan River across from the promised land. Because of sin that he had committed, in a way, taking credit for the water that flowed from the rock, he experienced the judgment of God. And yet, he's esteemed in the, the final text of Numbers and, and Deuteronomy and flowing into the book of Joshua. Even the way that Moses died. Is, is fascinating because either Moses prophesied his own death when writing the final words of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, or it very well could have been Joshua who took over because the very, you know, what we see happen is God say, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you to Joshua. So be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and very courageous. Like, so it's possible that Joshua wrote the final words, but I, I believe that, I believe that Moses wrote the final words prophesying his own death. But we see this esteem for Moses, how the life never left his eyes, even despite his old age, lead, lead, leading a life to the maximum number of years that that God would allow anyway. But Elijah is different. We see a transfigured Jesus, and we see Moses, and we see Elijah. What's fascinating about Elijah is that we don't see a biblical account for Elijah's death. In fact, we see a biblical account of Elijah being swept into heaven, similar to, say, Enoch. So Elijah and his, and his, uh, his protege, Elisha, are walking, and everybody's telling Elisha, hey, how do you feel knowing that your mentor is going to be taken away from you? And Elisha's like, I don't want to talk about it. I don't, I don't want anybody to mention it. It's remarkable too. Everybody knew this was going to happen to Elijah. They all knew what was coming. And they're asking Elisha, how do you feel about this? And Elisha's like, don't go there. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. And then we see this chariot of fire come and take Elijah into glory. And so in that regard, he doesn't really die. So here's Jesus transfigured. Here's Moses. And there's also Elijah. This is what gives rise to the, it's sort of a speculative view. Revelation 11, the two witnesses who are empowered by God with the ability to destroy their enemies with fire. They're heard by mass multitudes. Uh, These are the two witnesses in Revelation who are proclaiming the gospel, basically, in the uh, the midst of, you know, the end times. This is the belief that 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 could be Elijah and Moses. It comes from here, from Matthew 17. Here's what I do know. I don't know if the two witnesses are Elijah and Moses. They could be. But what I do know is that this is what Jesus was describing in the previous chapter. that you will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They got a glimpse of Jesus transfigured right before their eyes to his former glory in the presence of Elijah and Moses. And yet the teaching in this text is about how John the Baptist embodied what Elijah was prophesied of old. There was this spirit of Elijah that would reconcile the children to their fathers, talking about bringing Israel home. They had gone astray under the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, the teachers of the law. And and John the Baptist was remarkably pointed and confrontational in how he would, how he would, he would accost that false teaching. And Elijah, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come and they didn't recognize him. I don't believe that John the Baptist was somehow an incarnation for Elijah. I think that Elijah was the prophet of old who was swept into heaven. And I think that God prophesied the birth of John the Baptist uniquely to his father, Zechariah, through an angel in the Holy of Holies, just like he spoke to Uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, they're different dudes, okay but Elijah set the prototype, the archetype for that prophetic ministry, and then John the Baptist fulfilled it. Even when he was asked, are you Elijah? He would deny it, he was humble, or he didn't even see it himself, and yet Jesus confirms he is Elijah, and he reconfirms it here, he is Elijah. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him on the contrary they did whatever they pleased to him in the same way the son of man is going to suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about john the baptist the transfiguration is an enigmatic text it's profound it's deep it's remarkable peter kind of puts his foot in his mouth right he says lord it's good for us to be here i will set up three shelters here one for you one for moses and one for elijah right, this is a bit of an awkward moment. It's a bit of an embarrassing moment for Peter because he doesn't really know what he's saying, as uh, some accounts render it. But we do see Peter recount this later in writing the book of 2 Peter in chapter 1, verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory." Remember the bright cloud that enveloped them and caused them to go face down and be terrified in verse 6. "'This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. That's 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18, and it recalls the events of Matthew 17. So even though Peter didn't didn't know how to act in the sight of Jesus in his true glory, in the vision of Moses and Elijah and this teaching about John the Baptist, it does come back later. This The Holy Spirit would give to the disciples everything that they had missed later, and now they would become they would become divinely inspired authors of scripture itself. He had an encounter with glory. And now he's able to write more in our Bibles under that direct inspiration as an eyewitness himself to the very glory of God. And it's so cool to me that that glory of God as an eyewitness of the majesty of God, I see him describe it in 2 Peter 1 and then I read the text in Matthew 17 and I see that it left him terrified and face down. such that Jesus has to say, get up, don't be afraid. Wow, they got a glimpse of the son of man in his kingdom, in his glory that he had before. And they had a beautiful insight into the teachings of God's ministry through the prophet Elijah and through John the Baptist, the forerunner to the Messiah. The bad news was that, man, when John the Baptist came, they did whatever they pleased him. They cut John the Baptist's head off, by the way. That's the coothful the, the way in which Jesus says it is, is overlooking uh, a grotesque murder of an innocent man. And not only an innocent man, a righteous man, more than a prophet who'd done the right thing. So when Jesus says they did whatever they pleased with him, he's referring to the decapitation of John the Baptist. So that's who you're dealing with here. They, like the, the disciples see the clear contrast. John the Baptist was sent from God. Okay, in the ministry and the spirit and the fulfillment of Elijah and everything that Elijah typified and everything that was prophesied using the name of Elijah. Here's John the Baptist, but guess what? He got his head cut off. And now they're going to do this, now they're going to, to brutalize Jesus himself, the Son of God. Like they just bore witness firsthand to God the Father affirming, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased listen to him. Wow. Wow. They borne witness to it. And so there's a stark contrast. Like, wow, we know for, we know that John the Baptist was for real. We've just seen Elijah. We've just seen Moses. He wrote our favorite book. We just saw Jesus transfigured. We just heard the voice of God, the father. And now we're going to go back into the fray and these same Pharisees that killed John the Baptist are now going to kill Jesus. Man, you can see how their hearts are forevermore affixed heavenward. We may not be able to go to the holy mountain and see this ourselves, but man, in the redemption church, when we worship and the Holy Spirit of God is present, we're getting this glimpse of heaven. Moreover, I want to speak as well to those who would doubt the divinity of Jesus. It is... It is confounding to say the least that someone could read the gospel accounts and walk away with anything other than the view that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. It is a factuous question to ask, did Jesus claim to ever be the Son of God? Here is the biblical text. This is God the Father with the surrounding presence of the Holy Spirit speaking and saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. God the Father affirming the Son. This is Matthew 17, 1 through 13, and it is amazing. It is enigmatic, it is beautiful, and it obviously left a huge impression on Peter. When we pray, we're talking to the divine. He had a glory before we knew him on the earth, and now he's restored to that glory post-crucifixion at the hands of those who also brutalized John the Baptist. May we never cease to marvel at the holiness of God.